There are billions of tons and billions of dollars worth of critical minerals at the bottom of the seafloor. Nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese, minerals vital to electric vehicle batteries and the clean energy transition as a whole, are found in abundance in a patch of the Pacific Ocean known as the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. But extracting these minerals via deep-sea mining is a divisive idea. International regulations for this type of mining have yet to be finalized, and many fear the potential ecological disruption it could cause, and a part of our planet that still, in many ways, remains a mystery. We know also very, very little about how the deep sea functions, but we know it's fragile. It's very sensitive to disturbance. But one organization, the Metals Company, is forging ahead, looking to become the first to do deep sea mining on a commercial scale, as a number of other companies continue to explore the emerging industry's potential. The Metals Company, which went public via a disappointing SPAC in 2021, recently set forth a controversial timeline that would have it extracting metals from the seafloor by the end of 2025. We're not suggesting that this is a zero impact activity, but what we are suggesting is that the impacts are a fraction compared to the land-based alternatives. There's no doubt that land-based mining is fraught as well. Nickel is often mined for in Indonesia in rainforests. That causes deforestation. It's a huge loss of biodiversity. And mining for cobalt in the Congo is really associated with tremendous human rights violations. So the question really becomes, could deep sea mining be a less bad option? Major corporations like Google and Samsung, alongside automakers like BMW, Volkswagen, Volvo, and Rivian, have lined up against it, promising not to source minerals from the deep sea until the scientific uncertainties are addressed and regulations are in place. But as the metals company prepares to submit its mining application and regulators scramble to assemble rules, the debate could determine the future of our mineral supply chains. Underlying the whole deep-sea mining debate is the stark reality that the world needs to rapidly ramp up production of critical minerals in order to build batteries for electric vehicles and energy storage, as well as other green energy technologies like electricity networks and wind and solar farms. Nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese are found in abundance on the seafloor, in the form of so-called polymetallic nodules, globular concentrations of minerals that cover up to 70% of the seafloor in certain areas. These nodules form by precipitating the metals that are in the seawater and the sediment upon which they sit. So think of it as a big iron exchange on the bottom of the sea, cleaning the ocean of these metal compounds. Interest in extracting these mineral-rich nodules has existed for decades, but the focus has increased in the past few years as supply chain constraints threaten to push back ambitious EV adoption timelines set by both automakers and states like California. We need to, if we are going to scale, if you are going to remain competitive from a supply chain perspective, you need to look at everything that's on the table today for some of these critical minerals and metals, because fundamentally the way we've done things in the past isn't bringing material to the market quick enough. Battery demand for nickel is set to increase by a factor of about 20 this decade. Manganese demand is expected to increase about eightfold, and cobalt battery demand is expected to grow over 300%, all by 2030. The Clarion Clipperton Zone, they estimate there's more than 20 billion tons of nodules in the area. And when it comes to nickel, uh, they estimate there's around 270 million tons. 
For comparison, the world produced about 3.3 million metric tons of nickel last year. The metals company thinks the nickel market could benefit most from deep sea mining, both because the mineral is integral to energy-dense lithium-ion batteries and because the ramp-up of nickel mining in Indonesia is causing massive deforestation in the country's rainforests, which are vital carbon sinks. What I am absolutely convinced of is that we can slow down or maybe even stop the growth in rainforest nickel. Mining in the deep sea is completely different than mining on land. Here's what it looks like for the metals company, which is based in Vancouver. After setting out to sea on its production vessel, the Hidden Gem, the company sets up shop about 1,000 miles off the coast of Mexico in the clarion Clipperton Zone, or CCZ. And then we put down what's known as a, an air riser, which is basically a tube, which is the transport mechanism. We also put down an umbilical cord, which provides the power to our electric robot. And the robot basically crawls along the seafloor and we fire a jet of water at the nodules and essentially it creates an inverse pressure. And as the collector head moves, we lift the nodules, thereby minimizing the impact we make on any of the seafloor. And then we separate the sediment and then we put the nodules into our vertical transport system that pumps them up to our production vessel. And then once we're in production, they will be offloaded to a transport vessel that will then move them to shore for further processing. The company says that the polymetallic nodules that it collects can be processed and refined using existing technologies, and that it expects its costs to be in the bottom quartile compared to other suppliers. The project area where the metals company hopes to begin extraction, called the Nori D, is ranked as having the largest undeveloped nickel reserve in the world, and encompasses nearly 29,000 square miles of seafloor. Though that's only about 0.02% of the entire seabed, the company says that this resource, combined with another area where it has an exploration contract, contains enough nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese to power about 280 million EVs, the entire U.S. vehicle fleet. The net present value of Nori D is, is well north of $10 billion. And so it's valuable. And we have a, a defined resource of about 1.6 billion tons of polymetallic nodules. Last year, the metals company commissioned Benchmark Mineral Intelligence to conduct a life cycle analysis that models the environmental impact of collecting nickel, cobalt, and copper from the seafloor, and then processing these minerals on land in Texas. I think there's been a common narrative that's emerged rightly or wrongly around this industry, that the footprint was far more negative compared to land-based mining. And what ours actually showed was if these projects go ahead in the way that is being described and, and targeted today, could actually show some significant benefit. Benchmark's analysis showed that the metals company's proposed project performed better than land-based mining and processing in the majority of impact categories measured, including global warming potential, which was generally 54 to 70 percent lower. Deep-sea mining avoids the emissions associated with blasting and avoids sulfitic tailings, a waste material that can contaminate groundwater. And when it comes to a mineral like cobalt, the majority of which is sourced from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, deep-sea mining avoids the dismal working conditions and child labor that's found in Congolese mines. But there are lots of potential impacts that the life cycle analysis did not measure, including potential damage to deep-sea ecosystems and biodiversity, issues of great concern to the many advocacy organizations and companies alike that have lined up against deep-sea mining. A few years ago, the World Wildlife Fund released a business statement calling for a moratorium on deep-sea mining, which major companies like Google, as well as BMW, Volkswagen, Volvo, Renault, and Rivian have since signed on to. Because the deep-sea is so fragile, we would like to see 
this not happening there, at least until science has been able to do its part. And scientists are projecting it will take decades before we know enough about the deep sea to make those informed decisions to not jeopardize and destroy some things before we, we actually really know what it will do for us. Barron contends that the Clarion-Clipperton zone, where the metals company plans to mine, is much better understood than other areas of the deep sea, though. There's been a, a heavy investment in this area by the industry since the 1970s and by our company since 2011. We know a lot about the CCZ and reports suggest that there may be between five and 8,000 species that have been yet to identify or that are still being discovered, and that's true. Some of these organisms rely on polymetallic nodules for shelter or as an important part of their habitat. They would inevitably suffer were these nodules to be sucked off the ocean floor. Barron says, however, that we need to compare the thousands of species in the CCZ with the hundreds of thousands of species found in an environment like Indonesia's rainforests. Battle counters that at least with terrestrial mining, the dangers are understood. What is clear is that it's easier to monitor land mining than deep sea mining, and also easier to restore a landmine than a deep sea mine could be in the future. The main governing body grappling with these tensions is the International Seabed Authority, a UN-affiliated agency based in Kingston, Jamaica, tasked with developing international regulations for deep sea mining. They do not have a specific set of regulations determined for how deep sea mining would go forward. Those conversations are ongoing and they're hotly debated, but right now there is not an agreed upon set of regulations. But with the metals company trying to push forward its aggressive timeline for exploitation, the ISA is under pressure to finalize regulations. And in July, it missed a key deadline. Here's how it all works. In order to explore or eventually mine metals from the deep sea, private companies must be sponsored by an ISA member country, which can be held legally accountable under international law. The metals company's exploratory contracts have been sponsored by the tiny island nations of Nauru, Tonga, and Kiribati and it's looking to undertake its first exploitation mission in partnership with Nauru, which stands to receive royalties from mining operations. In June of 2021, Nauru submitted a letter to the ISA, notifying the agency of its plans to start mining. According to pre-existing rules, this gave the ISA a two-year timeframe to finalize regulations before it would have to start accepting mining applications. But now that deadline has passed, the council is obliged to receive any applications and to consider applications that are submitted in the absence of regulation. Whether or not applications must be provisionally approved and what this really means is a legal gray area. The metals company says it plans to submit its application in July of 2024, and Barron is optimistic that the ISA's Legal and Technical Council will recommend its approval to the 36-member Executive Council, even if regulations remain unfinalized the LTC would need to consider our application against where regulations are at the time. And the good news is those regulations are very advanced. And so we think that it would be sufficient to be measured against those regulations that are nearly finalized. But Singh, who attends meetings of the ISA and is a participant in the negotiations, is not nearly as confident that the regulations are close. The ISA has not even uh, developed thresholds on you know, what levels of harm would be deemed acceptable and what levels of harm would not be acceptable. And so it would take, I think, quite a long time before we get to a point where all 36 states are, are happy to sign off on the regulations. However, the metals company, which was founded in 2011, is under serious pressure to prove its value. 
Its SPAC merger in 2021 proved disastrous, as a major investor failed to deliver $200 million in promised funding, and 90% of the SPAC shareholders decided not to invest in the metals company, taking back their initial investments. Today, the company's stock price has plummeted almost 90%, and shipping giant Maersk, which once held over 9% of the company's shares, divested in May. They have to show a business case pretty soon, and money's not infinite for these, these types of projects, so they have to be effective and, and move as quickly as they can and start generating revenue effectively. Now, all eyes are on the metals company as it prepares to submit its mining application next year and begin production by the end of 2025. While there are other companies in this space, like Norway's Loke Marine Minerals and China's state-owned company Min Metals, the metals company could be alone in its efforts for a while. Apart from the, the metals company, I don't see any other company willing to test the council and submit an application before the end of 2025. And even if regulations are promptly finalized and production begins soon, Miller predicts that we won't see minerals from deep sea mining having a significant impact on supply chains this decade. We're talking, uh, you know, I would say well into the 2030s, uh, I would imagine. If, like you say, if everything was sort of settled and, and sorted today and so you're seeing really meaningful volumes. Barron thinks that once deep sea mining gets underway, though, we'll see a rapid ramp up. One of the analogies is the offshore oil and gas industry that once upon a time did not exist. And then in the flick of a switch, 30% of oil and gas came from offshore. I think the same will happen when it comes to these battery metals. While Barron and other deep sea mining proponents are optimistic that sourcing minerals from the deep sea means that we'll source less from the land, Singh and others point out that this isn't a given. I'm firmly of the view that deep sea bed mining is not in any way going to alleviate or reduce terrestrial mining. In fact, from my point of view, we would end up seeing more terrestrial mining in order to compete with deep sea bed mining. Of course, finding alternatives to mining, whether on land or at sea, is always the ideal scenario. Reduction of primary demand, recycling, of course, but at the end of the day, some land mining is necessary for a while until there's enough minerals in that system to go fully circular. Battle says that extracting metals from the tailings of old mines is a good place to start. But to massively scale up the production of battery minerals to meet our clean energy goals, most agree that new mines are inevitable, hard trade-offs will need to be made, and ecosystem impacts of some kind will be unavoidable. At some point, it becomes a question of what's the least bad situation? What's the least bad way to get access to these metals? It's a painful question to ask of ourselves, but it's also representative in many ways of where we are in addressing climate change right now.